Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture podcast. I'm Dr. Ken Keefley, and today we're presenting part one of a special two-part Christmas episode on the biblical and theological implications of the birth of Christ. We'll discuss what the Bible really says about the Christmas story and its impact has had on our Christian faith. And be sure to tune in next week for the second half of our conversation as we continue celebrating the Christmas season. Hi everyone, my name is Nathaniel Williams, and I have the pleasure of working alongside Dr. Keith Lee here at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Not only is this episode special for the Christmas season, but we also have the privilege of hearing from Dr. Keith Lee himself. While Dr. Keith Lee usually serves as the host of our conversations, today we're handing him the mic to share his theological insights on the Christmas story. Dr. Keith Lee is a senior professor of theology and the Jesse Hindley Chair of Theology at Southeastern. He's also the director of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. Dr. Keithley is the author of Salvation and Sovereignty, A Molinist Approach, co-author of 40 Questions About Creation and Evolution, and co-editor of Old Earth or Evolutionary Creation, Discussing Origins with Reasons to Believe, and Biologos. He and his wife Penny have been married since 1980 and currently live in Wake Forest, North Carolina. They have a son and a daughter, both married, and four grandchildren. Thank you for being our guest today, Dr. Keithley. Well, thank you, Nathaniel. All right, let's jump right into it. It's the Christmas season. We're all getting our trees up and decorations ready. Uh, the Christmas story is one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. However, let's be honest, we often don't get all the details right. So in what ways have we as Christians uh, been wrong over the years in how we understand the Christmas story and share that story? And then what do we lose when we get this story wrong? Well, Merry Christmas, and I hope you're having a great Advent season. Talking about the things that we get right or we get wrong about the Christmas story reminds me of how I argued with my mother when I was a little boy, got into a fierce argument with her because I was quite sure that there was a little drummer boy at the Nativity. I mean, there's that song. And if the song says there was a little drummer boy uh, that played his drum for the baby Jesus and Mary smiled, and I mean, how can that be wrong? I heard it on the song. And so I think for a lot of people, we pick up various stories and traditions and things uh, without really paying attention to what the biblical text actually says. What are the consequences of doing this? Because a lot of, as you mentioned, we, we, a lot of times our understanding of the biblical story of, of Jesus' birth is informed by the children's books or by the movies or by the songs. What are, what are the consequences of that? I have no problem with uh, great Christmas fiction. We at, at my house, we're going to watch uh, The Grinch uh, as he steals Christmas or the Peanuts special. And, and I think that uh, in my opinion, 
the greatest of all Christmas movies uh, is It's a Wonderful Life. That's a good one. Uh, but yeah, I can't help it. I, I, I almost always shed a tear as Clarence gets his wings at the very end. Of course, you have to remember, these are works of fiction, and there's all kinds of things, uh, you know, people who die do not become angels. And every time a bell rings, you know, an angel doesn't get his wings. And of course, we recognize that. But um, it, it is surprising uh, that many times people really don't know. As a result, they really don't pay very close attention to what the Bible actually says. And what the Bible actually says is, is there's some very rich things. There's some wonderful things that we are in danger of losing or missing out on, on what the biblical narrative actually tells us. And so uh, as long as we, we make a clear distinction between that which is fiction and then what the Bible actually teaches, because one thing that the Bible does uh, in, in, the, in the accounts, and, and there are two of the four Gospels telling us the Christmas nativity, uh, the Christmas story, and that's, of course, uh, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And what this does is that it anchors the Gospel in history, uh, it lets us know uh, that Jesus really is a, a person who lived uh, at a particular time and in a particular place and accomplished particular things. And those things um, are so very important uh, that I always worry about us losing that great truth. Very, very good. Speaking of the story itself, you know, uh, some of the most famous characters in the Christmas story are the shepherds. And the Magi. And it's interesting to me in rereading these with fresh eyes, you know, how God communicates the birth of Jesus differently to both of those groups. To the shepherds, he uses angels to announce Jesus' birth. To the Magi, he uses astrological signs and the stars. Why is that? And then kind of related to that, what does that tell us about how God works and how God does his mission in the world? Yeah, well, the well, first thing it lets us know is that God can surprise us. I mean, there's a lot of things about that story, or those, both of those stories, that uh, we would not have expected. Um, you know, first off, uh, if you'll notice in both of the stories, in, in Matthew's gospel we have where God reveals to the Magi uh, that the, the, the Christ has been born. And in Luke's gospel we have where God lets the shepherds know. And so you have two different groups of men, shepherds and magi, being, uh, being told about something that's extraordinary in two very different ways. It lets us know that God meets people where they're at. The shepherds were uh, Jewish shepherds. They, they were in uh, the promised land already. And if you'll notice, God revealed uh, to them via angels. And the angels told a very clear thing about how the Christ was born to them. And, uh, and, and so they were then able to go down into Bethlehem and see where he was there in the manger. The wise men, on the other hand, the magi, they, they saw some type of astronomical signs. And what exactly were those signs? Well, that's something that uh, scholars have, have discussed and debated for centuries. We 
to this day, nobody's going to be really sure what it was that notified uh, those men. But what it lets us know, if you'll notice, God spoke to them through events of nature. Uh, here were uh, men who were not in the promised land. They were not people of the covenant. And yet it lets us know that just because they were outside of who we would consider to be the people of God, God still loved them. God still communicated to them. God still reached out to them and made sure they knew about what had occurred. So it lets us know uh, that, uh, as Psalm 19 says, the, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork, and the entire psalm talks about how uh, God is communicating to the whole world, to everyone, everywhere, all the time. And so it lets us know that uh, there is a very special and unique way that he spoke to the shepherds. I mean, you have angels speaking audibly. And in a more broad way, he's speaking through nature to the Magi. Either way, God speaks. He communicates. Uh, and so it, it lets us know uh, there is the special revelation. There is general revelation. God still reveals himself. That's really, really beautiful, thinking about all the ways that God reached out to them and, yeah. and thinking about ourselves, all the ways that God has reached out to us and revealed himself to us, especially in his word. Thinking about the Magi, you, you kind of were talking about them a second ago. Who were they? I mean, we've got the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. Uh, we call them wise men sometimes. Who are these guys and why does their inclusion matter in the story? And, and who doesn't like that, that great old, you know, carol, We Three Kings of Orient Are, uh, burying gifts we've traveled afar. Well, um, truth of matter is, um, there's no indication that there were three of them, uh, and uh, there's no indication that they were kings. I mean, that, again, here's where uh, the songs are great, but it's not a good idea to build one's theology off, off of some, something that you hear on an album. Um, so uh, who were they? Well, the Magi were evidently a priestly caste uh, in um, today, what, you know, you know in, in Babylon, what would today be uh, in, in the area of Persia, sort of the Iraqi Persian area, that, that region, part of the world. They were the elite uh, who were um, educated in, in the finest, in, in everything that was to be known about mathematics, uh, astronomy back then, astronomy and astrology were basically the, you know, were, were, were connected to the hip. Um, and uh, they were involved in the training and educating of the royal class uh, in ancient Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar uh, invaded Israel and destroyed Judah, and the first temple was, was burned to the ground uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the biblical text says the Magi were with him. Uh, and so the, they are uh, elusive in many ways, mysterious in many ways, but uh, they, it's very clear that these were very special. It, for them to show up in Jerusalem the way they did, uh, it would be as if uh, Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking uh, and Isaac Newton were to arrive uh, at uh, somewhere saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? 
I mean, this, these, these, they were uh, the intellectual elites. Would have been shocking to see them stroll into town. Yeah, it was. It, it's not surprising that there, it, it generated a buzz. And whenever they ask, where is he who is born king of the Jews, um, that would have gotten Herod's attention right off, the, right off the top because that was the title that Herod had had the Roman Senate bestow upon him. And so uh, for here you have Herod the Great, um, these fellows to show up into town saying, well, where is the real king of the Jews? We've heard that he's been born. That would have Herod's attention. Yeah, he would not have liked that too much. Yes, but, you know, it's interesting. Herod, I think it's interesting what Herod does. If you'll notice, uh, he, is, he is a crafty fellow. He is, he is quite, uh, quite cunning. In fact, I think we could say that Herod uh, may have been the first false profession of faith in the Bible. Um, it goes to show, uh, you know, here's somebody who was very religious, quite involved in religious activities. There's, uh, the, the temple was called Herod's Temple for very good reason. Uh, he invested in an in, in, in astronomical sum of money, uh, amount of, of resources into renovating and rebuilding the temple the way it was. It was a hundred-year project that was only half done when he died. Uh, and so, in fact, in fact, the temple finally was finished just before uh, Titus came in and destroyed it. I mean, it, it took it, it was finished in the late 60s uh, A.D. Uh, and just about the time it was finished, it was it was then the Romans came in and destroyed it a second time. Uh, but it was called Herod's Temple because he's the one who spent the money to fix it up. Uh, if you'll notice what he says to the. To, to the wise men. He says, uh, you know, let me know where he's at so that I may come and worship him also. Well, the last thing he planned on doing was actually worshiping him. Uh, and so, uh, I, 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 and, and everything that we read about uh, Herod in what he did, uh, that he uh, was lying about that, and that then when he found out that he would, had been fooled by the wise men. They went home a different way. Uh, he went into a rage and killed everyone, all the, all the children of Bethlehem too and under. This again uh, is very much in keeping with everything we know about him. He was a murderous, pathological killer. Um, he not only executed his wife, but uh, his son, uh, anyone who was that he perceived to be a threat. Um, if he thought that you, you, you were in any way posing a threat to him and his ability to have absolute rule, uh, your life was, going to, it was not going to be very long. Uh, and so uh, he was known for this kind of behavior. He was so hated, uh, so despised by uh, the, the people in uh, the Holy Land at that time that he knew that as he was dying— uh, that uh, nobody was going to be glad. So he had a lot of the leading men of the city arrested and gave orders for them to be executed on the day of his death so that people would be sad, that there would be sorrow, uh, and that there would be mourning on his day because they knew that they were not going to mourn for him. Uh, lucky for the, the, 
fortunate for the people who were arrested is that whenever he died, uh, that the soldiers then promptly uh, ignored uh, that the command. And speaking of him slowly dying, uh, when the Magi arrived, he was already he already knew that he was in the last stages of his life, and you and and. Uh, he became more pathological, more insane, and more murderous uh, the last days of his life. So what we read about uh, happening in the biblical story fits very well with what we know in extra-biblical history about Herod. Lots of narcissism, paranoia, and power all roll into one. Not a He good was a psychopath. Yeah. He was very much a yeah. psychopath. Yeah. Well, well, shifting gears a little bit, uh, thinking about the Christmas story, uh, you know, when you read, for example, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, yeah. and you start with Matthew, you would expect that it would start with the birth, but it doesn't start there. The Gospel of Matthew starts first with a genealogy. And, uh, you know, so it's a little bit different for us uh, as we read this. We're expecting the story, but we, we get the genealogy. Same thing with Luke. Luke also includes a genealogy of Jesus a little bit later in his narrative. You know, why include the genealogies and why are they a little bit different? Yeah, good question. Both very good questions. Again, what the genealogies do very quickly is that they are intended to anchor Jesus in history, that he lived at a particular time. We're not talking about some type of fable or some type of abstract story that can be applied anywhere at any time. This is, this is in marked contrast to the other great religious leaders. Uh, for example, uh, the Buddha. Um, you know, there's, there's always, there's still a controversy, a very, very valid question about whether the Buddha actually was a person in history. And the fact of the matter is, uh, with his eightfold path of enlightenment, you could have a, a literal historical Buddha or just one who is simply a fable, and it wouldn't matter because uh, the, the historical life of the Buddha really isn't significant. Uh, so, so whether or not he actually lived or not doesn't matter because he pointed to this Eightfold Path. In, uh, also, whenever you think of Muhammad, um, the way the Quran was uh, provided through Muhammad, it's very different than the way the Bible uh, come about. Um, you know, if, if you, if the, way, the way Muhammad... Uh, it says the Quran came about uh, through uh, a series of very uh, powerful visions, uh, some some very powerful, amazing experiences, and and the result is the Quran was written all at this one time. You know, it's as if the Quran dropped down, and there you have it. And this is a great item of conversation between Christians and Muslims, because one of the things about the Bible is that the Bible is something that develops from the ancient time of the Old Testament up through the New Testament. Uh, and it's something that shows that development, and it's something very much anchored in history. Same thing it is with Jesus. I mean, you can, uh, like I said, you can um, have a historical Buddha or a non-historical Buddha, and you still have Buddhism. You can have uh, the, the Islam, uh, you know, the, the five pillars of Islam are not dependent upon Muhammad, really. Jesus Christ is Christianity. Uh, you remove Christ, we don't have a faith because he, it is, uh, our, our faith is anchored in him, uh, his life, 
who he is, what he did, and what he accomplished. And so Christianity is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is Christianity. So that's the very first thing that we see in the genealogies, that they're letting us know uh, that God is, but not only does he exist, he is one who is very much active in history. And he's not just active in history. God united himself with us. He, he joined us in history through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I, I assume that you want to go next into you know, the, the, the differences in the two genealogies. Yeah, because they're not exactly the same. Are they? Yeah. yeah, well, when you look at Matthew's uh, genealogy, uh, he starts with Abraham and then moves up to Jesus. And, it's, uh, and, and one of the interesting things about uh, Matthew's ge- uh, genealogy, it shows us that how much uh, in that day they were an oral culture, that uh, things were designed to be memorized. And so what he does in Matthew's genealogy is that he groups them in groups of 14 generations. Uh, that's the, now, why does he do that? In fact, he adds and subtracts a couple of them in order to get it to work out that way. And what you have is, is a memorization. It's a, it's a mnemonic device so that a person who has committed that to memory, and that's something that uh, for us in this literate age that we live in which we have books available to us, uh, and, and now not only just books available, but everything's digital available, um, we forget how rare and precious books were in the ancient world, and most people would hear a book read to them. Uh, and so therefore, if they were going to have it available, they were going to have to commit it by memory. And so things were designed to, and were written for the purpose of being memorized. So Matthew's genealogy is designed for people to memorize it. Now you think about it, that's, a, that's a, something that's almost alien to you and me because whenever, I don't know about you, whenever you, you, you read through genealogies, whether it's in Genesis 4 and 5, our, our chronicles, our, the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, I have a tendency to blip over them. On you the know, surface, I, it's a little dull. Let's yeah, I may say they're, they're yeah. not anybody I know. Uh, and these names, you know, it, you know, and so we have, it, and it seems to get a little repetitious. You know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, then so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And then you find yourself just, you know, well, they memorized them. Uh, it lets us know how well did they know uh, the genealogies. Well enough that they could just recite it to you. Um, another thing that's interesting about uh, Matthew's uh, genealogy is that the four women that are included. Right. I was going to ask you about that because uh, one of the good things about reading more deeply into the genealogies is you is you see some some interesting things, particularly in Matthew, the the, the list of women. What's up? Yeah, with that? it's generally men, uh, almost always men, but there are four women before Mary is mentioned, and the four, quite honestly, are a bit of a scandal. Um, uh, you, you first have Tamar. Uh, which uh, the way by which she gave birth uh, is, you know, she pretended to be a prostitute. That's, that's, that's more than just a little bit scandalous. Uh, you read the whole story, uh, you know, in fact, uh, she was uh, at one point at risk of being stoned. Uh, then the next woman is, actually was a prostitute. It's Rahab. And, of course, we have the account in Joshua about how she is the the one person who believes in Jericho, and as a result, she and her family are rescued, uh, are saved. Uh, they, they, they are spared from what happens to everyone in Jericho. 
Uh, and then you have the story of Ruth, again, another. Uh, here you have an example of a Gentile woman. She's a Moabite, of all things. Uh, and uh, so uh, she is included. And then you have uh, scandal of scandals, uh, Bathsheba, uh, the, the wife of Uriah. And so the four women who are included, uh, it's interesting that, that women are included at all. The four that are selected is to let us know that, yes, this is the king of the Jews, but God is also a God of grace even in this, these instances where he is working through people that we would not expect. Uh, and uh, it, it, that comes through very... In fact, uh, you also have uh, where King Manasseh is one of the ancestors of Jesus. And uh, you think about it, the Bible says in the Old Testament unambiguously that he was the most wicked of all the kings. He did more damage. He caused Israel to sin in a way worse than any other king. At the end of his life, he repents and he finds forgiveness uh, and he is restored to God. Uh, and it's, an, it's just an extraordinary thing, uh, account of grace. And then you have another king who's talked about uh, where, uh, you know, he, he was king when the the Babylonians came in and destroyed everything and all of the promises that seemed that God had made in the Old Testament now they're gone they seem to have evaporated disappeared and and it looks like the the promise and plan of God has failed and you know what the genealogy lets us know is that even whenever it looked hopeless God's plan was going on just as always and so that is something that we see in Matthew's gospel uh, and in the genealogy, it's letting us know uh, that here is God acting in history in the most subtle and surprising of ways, and yet God is still very, very, very active. What an encouraging word in general, but especially in this year where things seem kind of bleak. But this is a reminder that, that God is at work even in the times where we think maybe he's not. And uh, so uh, thank you for that. Thank you, Dr. Keithley, for sharing with us about the uh, the uh, Christmas story today. We're going to be back next week uh, with a few more uh, looks into the Christmas story and specifically the theology of Christmas. So I uh, hope you'll join us next week for that. If you're listening, do us a huge favor and uh, go to our Apple podcast page, rate and review us. It'll be tremendously helpful as we seek to spread the word about Christ and culture and also hear uh, from you how we're doing. But from all of us here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, we wish you a very merry Christmas.